Once again, if you've got a Bible, we're in Exodus 25. If you have not been with us, we are studying the book of Exodus. We set out about a year ago to study the first 20, 24 chapters or so of Exodus, particularly about the um, people of Israel who were slaves to Egypt. We talked about how they got there, why they were there, and how they got out of there. Um, God used that group of slaves um, those that were in bondage to the Egyptians, he used them to tell a story to the world that there was a one true God. His name was Yahweh. His name was the great I Am. And God used Israel to display his power, display his might, display his glory and wonders. And he worked those miracles in the land of Egypt to tell Egypt that their gods were no gods at all, that Pharaoh was no ruler over all, but God in heaven was. And Israel was his chosen people, his choice nation that he was going to come, bring out of slavery and bring into a promised land that he had, that he had planned and, and prepared for them years and years before. And through that promised land, through that promised people, he would go on to bring a Savior to the whole world. So uh, as Christians, it's important that we study this story because our story comes from this story. The story of Jesus comes from the story of Israel, and Israel's story begins in Exodus. And we've learned about the wonders that God wrought there in Egypt, how he brought them out of um, the, 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 the empire across the Red Sea. He provided for them with miracles in the desert, and then he led them to a mountain, Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai would be this place that he would reveal himself to Moses, to the leaders of Israel, to the people of Israel, where they would be um, sort of struck with all that he is, all of his presence, all of his power, and hopefully that impact would be enough to send them forward into the promised land to tell the whole world about the one true God. And of course, we, on this side of history, 3,000 or so years later, we can say it worked, right? We can say that what God set out to do, he accomplished in full. Um, but that story kind of ended in Exodus 24. They got to the mountain. Moses and the elders uh, uh, climbed the mountain. God began to reveal his word to them. But the story wasn't over. Um, the nation of Israel was still um, in preparation mode. Um, before they would go into the promised land, they would spend 40 years traveling from Egypt to the land of Canaan, the, the land where Israel would dwell. Um, and the last 15 chapters, 16 chapters actually of Exodus, are about the building of a sanctuary, the building of a place not just for worship, but a place for a community to dwell and, and operate out of, a place for ministry to be headquartered out of. And we know that the sanctuary that was built in the old days, the tabernacle originally, the temple that would come after it, would serve as a prototype for the community of God's people, the place of worship for God's people, the ministry of God's people. It would serve as a prototype for what he would go on to do through the church. Not confined to a certain place, certain time, but confined to a people, a gathering, wherever we are, wherever we come together, on different parts of the world, different continents, different countries, different time zones, different people groups. But everyone who gathers in the name of Jesus, we continue to kind of hold up this tradition of being a people of God coming together within and around this idea that there is a sanctuary for God's people. The, the word sanctuary means rest. It means place of refuge, uh, a place for worship, a place for community, and a place for ministry to operate out of. And, and uh, at the end of our previous study, in the beginning of this study, Moses and the elders, Moses and the leaders, um, learn how to build and foster a worship 
worshiping, ministry-minded community for God's people. So I think we can benefit from studying this same, uh, this same text that, that instructed them. Of course, things are different. Um, we're not under the same covenant, and we talked about that last week. We'll continue to talk about and make distinction where it's better for us, which is always good news, but we'll compare and contrast. But I promise you there's more to learn, and there's more to benefit from in these cha- t- chapters that maybe you've skimmed over before, Maybe you've read Exodus up to the Ten Commandments, and then you looked at the next chapter, and you're kind of all of a sudden the words started all this, you know blurring together because you read a lot of stuff that made no sense to you. And believe me, I'm there as well. I, I've been there. I go through that a lot. Exodus 21 all the way to the end of Deuteronomy. It's just kind of like you're just seeing a bunch of you know you're into the forest and all the trees run together. That's okay but they're still good to be found even in um, some of the most obscure um, Old Testament chapters of the Bible. There's good stuff for us to find, and we're going to learn as they learned what does it mean and how can we build and foster a community um, that is about worship and about ministry. Um, We're going to find as we read over these next 16 chapters together um, that we ourselves can ascend and dwell in this cloud of worship and the beauty of community and in the mission or on the mission of ministry. As Moses ascended and walked in that cloud and experienced God, we too can experience the fullness and the presence of God as they begin to learn the benefit and the beauty of coming together and being a group, being a community, not just individuals. We can learn the value of that as well. And also, as they went on the mission field, as they began to do ministry to help people, to serve people, to love people, we can learn the value and the benefit of being a people about ministry. So the first part of this section 25, 1 through 9, um, we studied last time, um, but it's about what they needed to build this place, to build this temporary tent that would become the temple later. Uh, The first section, the first nine verses, is about what they needed, the supplies they needed to build the the tabernacle. Uh, Now, something that is underscored that we breezed right past last week is the first and most crucial element of building a community about worship and ministry, the most crucial ingredient, the most crucial element of that is people, right? It's not the supplies that they brought, but it's the people that came together and contributed to this great project. The crux of the first passage of the first few verses um, is an invitation to the sanctuary, an invitation to make room for God sure that God can take room around and with us. And we talked last week in closing that the more room we make for God, the more room God can take within us, around us, and in the community that we build so we can experience rest and experience Him to the fullest so that we might step into the cloud of worship, that we might appreciate the beauty of community and walk in the mission of ministry. And tonight, we're moving on to talk about the first item of importance besides the people, the first item of importance within the sanctuary. Um, And every one of us has heard about this item before. We probably know bits and pieces about it, um, but there's a lot to unpack and appreciate here. And if you've got a Bible, you'll probably notice the heading of verses 10 through 22. Before we even read these verses, you'll notice the heading of this section is probably something like the Ark of the Covenant, or maybe the Ark of God, the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Testimony, is what my Bible says. Um, now, the Ark of the, the Covenant um, was, this care, was this container, was this chest um, that was in a room by itself in the most inner part of the sanctuary, the most inner chamber of the 
tabernacle, the temple, that was often called the Holy of Holies. Now, we'll spend more time talking about the way the building was designed and what that means and the symbols we can learn and all that um, in the future. But the gist of this, tonight's message is all about this ark. Um, this is kind of a recreation of what it looks like. Obviously, that's not the actual Ark of the Covenant. It was burnt up when the temple was destroyed way, way back a long time ago. I know they've made movies about trying to find it. Indiana Jones thinks, did he find it? I haven't watched that movie in a long time. But there's a lot of, uh, you know, theories and all that stuff. It's just a box, right? It was special back then, but we've got something better for us. So the good news is this box is gone. It doesn't matter that it's gone. We've got, we've still got the, what this box symbolized. We've got it through the Spirit of God. But this box, this ark, if you will, this chest, this container um, was uh, made out of acacia wood. You couldn't tell because it looks like it's made out of gold, which we'll talk about. Um, it was made out of acacia wood, but it was covered in gold, and we'll talk about that process and why that was important. It was covered in gold, had a golden lid. You can tell that it had golden molding, golden crown molding around the top of the edge, the top of the container. There was a lid, it was a slit for the lid to slide into. Um, it had golden rings on all four corners. Um, that these carrying poles could be slid through it. This is kind of a bad analogy, but the, the best case, the best way I can describe it is if you've ever seen a coffin before, right? That's where the idea comes from. And the Hebrew word for coffin is the Hebrew word for ark. So they, their idea of carrying something, they went to what they knew. And they, they were carrying a coffin of Joseph out of Egypt, and they really used that coffin as a kind of a symbolism of what they were building. Now, of course, Joseph was dead, but... God, who was going to dwell in this ark, was very much alive. So we can see the contrast there. Joseph took them there, but God was taking them out of there. Um, and uh, this ark was kind of like that. though. It had the, the bars on the side. They would have someone carry on each four corners, and there's a lot of information about why that was important that we'll talk about later. But the, the gist of it, the, 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 the nature of this ark, this vessel, carried and contained God's presence. God's presence, that His Spirit, His Holy Spirit, His essence, His presence dwelled in and around this ark. And that might be strange to you, and we'll talk about what that means and, and how that, you know, how we can, can learn from that and relate to that. Um, the, 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 the container, it contained um, some of the reminders of God's, God's presence. Um, it contained the tablets that Moses received on the mountain. Um, most believe it was just the Ten Commandments. Um, I doubt it contained Genesis through Deuteronomy. It might have, I don't know, but most believe that it contained the Ten Commandments that God you know, uh, uh, as the scripture says, wrote with his own finger. Um, it contained the Ten Commandments that really was the covenant God made with Israel. They were his people. He brought them out of Egypt because he loved them. He saved them. The commandments were a promise to them. Hey, if you do this, you'll, you'll be fine. You'll live well. You'll enjoy life, right? So God made a promise to them. It contained that those tablets. It contained the manna. The manna was a, was a symbol of God's provision. Remember, it rained bread every day for 40 years. And they took a piece, a, a, a part of the manna, or a, some slices of the manna, and they placed it in the ark. And it was a symbol of God's provision. He always would provide. It also contained 
Aaron's rod. Now, we haven't got to that story yet, but Aaron's rod um, that he used in his signs and wonders in Egypt and to perform miracles to the people, Aaron's rod, there's a point in the, in the story where Aaron's rod buds, you know, as in the piece of wood, the stick of wood that was considered dead, it actually sprouts a flower or sprouts vegeta- vegetation. And that was a symbol of God's power to bring life to the dead. So we see this ark contained symbols of God's promises, symbols of God's provisions, and symbols of God's power. So everything you needed about God was in this box or was symbolized in this ark, in this chest. Now God in all of His power and wonder, as they had experienced Him through Exodus, would become so small and so personal as to dwell in the box. Now see the, the, the picture there? They had experienced God in amazing ways, right? They saw him perform plagues over Egypt to show him show that he was God, not the gods of Egypt. They watched him part the water. They watched him bring water out of rocks. They watched him pour bread out of heaven. They watched him you know, make the water that was bitter taste sweet. They watched God and experienced God do amazing, amazing, incredible, bigger than the universe things. And God, in all of his infinite wisdom and wonder, became so personal to dwell in this chest that would be at the heart of their sanctuary. That's pretty incredible to think about, right? This would just be a temporary thing, though. Uh, Not the eternal plan um, that would be God dwelling in our hearts, right? So God dwelled in the heart of the tent. The eventual and the long-term plan is that God would dwell in the heart of people, right? Because there's there's more of God where there are people that gather. So the idea is that God would dwell in our hearts, and as Christians, we know that He does. So God dwells in our hearts. So when we all come together, guess what? There's more of God right? Where God's people dwell, He's in mine, He's in yours, He's in all of our hearts. So that's what the the privilege and the awesome thing about gathering together is that God's presence is more palpable, it's more felt, it's greater, so that it sends a message to the world that God is not dead, He is surely alive. Now, we gather together uh, as they did in this tent that was just an ark where God dwelled, but we on this side know that God dwells in our hearts, so it's important to, to kind of to talk about that. Now, even though we're going to study the tabernacle, we're trying to stay within the text. We still have to look forward to the New Testament and not get crossed up and think, well, the stuff that you know that we're not confined by some of the limitations from the Old Testament. There's a lot of pictures back here of things that we've seen the full versions of, right? In a sense that a lot of the things that we read about in Exodus, they're like seeing a movie trailer. They just got to see glimpse and bits and pieces that we've got to see the full flesh version, right? We've got to see the full feature and experience it ourselves. So we're pretty fortunate on this side of Jesus. But the message here is that God is not walled off to anyone anymore. Now, in the old days, the ark was behind a very thick veil. It was only for certain people on certain days of the year to get an experience, and only the priests could get back there, and you and me would have to just hope that we could, you know, get a little bit of it when they came out and talked to us. We don't have to worry about accessing God through a priest or vicariously through some holy person. God is not walled off anymore. God is accessible to everybody. Jesus made sure of that. The Holy Spirit works to make sure of this. Now, the veil that was in front of this ark, when Jesus died, and we'll talk about what his death means, when Jesus died, the scripture says in Matthew chapter 27, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom to show that God is not confound or confined to this box anymore. That his presence has been ushered into the world. Now here's what that means. Separation now 
is not a curse, it's a choice. See, in the old days, separation was a part of the curse. We were cursed because of sin, and we were separated from God. Whether you liked it or not, whether you wanted to know Him or not, it was a, the curse, the fall, separated people. There was a veil, there was a wall, there was a box. But separation today is not a curse anymore. The curse has been reversed. Separation remains a choice that anybody that wants to experience God's presence can experience Him and know Him through Jesus. All of these truths, though, about the ark are true to this day. They're, not just, they're just not confined to this box anymore. Not something we only experience vicariously through others. So with all that in mind, we're going to read a little bit of this text and draw out some of the key features of the ark that still send a powerful message from us today about experiencing and knowing God and how we, sh- how we can and should approach Him. And maybe you're wondering, well, Justin, if all this has been kind of undone and reversed, why do we study the old? I think it's incredible to see how God was previewing it for us all these years later. Um, and I still believe that every chapter of God's Word reveals something unique and something valuable. So studying this gives us something that we, we might miss otherwise. So Exodus 25, verse 10 through 22, uh, the Word of the Lord reads, I would love for you to follow me. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. That's about four and a half feet. A cubit and a half its width and a cubit and a half its height. So it's about two and a half feet both ways. You shall overlay it it with pure gold. Inside and out, you shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four corners, two rings on one side, two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it, so that it was always ready to be moved. You shall put into the ark of the testimony, which I, which I give you. And we've already talked about what they put in there. You shall make a mercy seat, which is just a lid. A mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. You shall take two cherubim of gold, or make two cherubim of gold. Hammered work, you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. So they're looking over into or on top of the ark. Make one cherub on one end and one and the other cherub on the other end. You shall make the cherub cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another, and faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. And cherubim, um, angelic creatures, the, the, you know, we've, these are the little things that we, these are where we get the traditional picture of an angel, right? The little Cupid angels from Valentine's Day. That's what a cherub, kind of where the design of those things comes from, the idea of a cherub. Um, and those, you saw the picture of the ark where they were on both ends. So we think, we hear angel when we hear cherub, but that's what the Hebrew word for it is. Um, you shall put on the mercy seat, on, put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and the ark you shall put the testimony which I gave you. And there I will meet with you. So here's the whole purpose of this. I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are of, on the ark of the testimony about everything which I give you in the commandment of the children of Israel. So God would dwell with them and talk to them and communicate with them from this specific place at this ark in this sanctuary. So... The emphasis in these first, uh, the first seven verses, 10 through 16, the emphasis is on the design of the box. Again, we've already talked about it, just a big chest, four and a half feet long, uh, four feet long, two and a half feet deep, two and a half feet tall. The big takeaway here is the entire thing is overlaid with gold. 
Now, this is more than just about this is more than just gold plated that you could scratch off if you tried hard enough. Um, the golden overlay is a big theme. We've already read it about two or three times in this chapter. As we keep reading throughout Exodus, and you get into the temple days, everything was overlaid with gold. Now, gold overlay, um, the overlaying process would involve heating up gold and pressing it out to be pretty to be a pretty thick coating that would be pressurized into into kind of cementing on the surface of any object that you poured it and that you kind of you dress it up. As we're going to read, everything in the temple, everything in the tabernacle is overlaid with gold, some sort of mineral or precious metal, especially gold, sometimes bronze and other things. Um, and maybe you wonder, why? Why was it all golden? Um, well, the property of gold ensured that it would not tarnish, right? Wood would rot catch on fire. The gold would seal it. It would prevent it from tarnishing or decaying, which is why people use gold for jewelry, right? Um, it was also, though, gold was considered very valuable because it did not tarnish and because it would seal and secure things. So besides being valuable, gold was also malleable. You could hammer it into anything, strips and objects. It would be a perfect covering for anything that you set your mind to use it with. Um, and as with gold, as with other minerals and other metals, maybe you don't know this, gold is mentioned in the creation story. Gold was built into the earth. And the creation story goes out of its way to tell us about the gold that God built into the land. Genesis chapter 2, verse number 11, the scripture says from, the, from one of the rivers, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havaliah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Now, there's nothing else said about gold in the book of Genesis. But this one verse stands out. That the gold was placed there, and even before people, even before the, you know, the, the creation or the, of, of, of Adam and Eve, and all that came out of that, the gold in the land, and you'll notice in, in Genesis, God says, and it was the third day, it was good, and it was the fourth day, it was good, it was the seventh day, it was good, and then you hear it again. There was gold in the land, and guess what? It was good too. Now, God, God instilled purpose into these minerals, gold included. The great value was ascribed to them as a result. Now, think about this. The fall affected everything on earth. That the fall affected people, it affected animals, it affected the ground, it affected the grass, it affected all of nature, right? All of nature suffers from death in some way because of the fall. But guess what? These metals were not affected by the fall. Ever thought about that? People were affected by the fall, Nature was affected by the fall, plants, animals, but the metals were not affected. They still maintained their purity and their value and their malleability and their purpose, even though the rest of the earth lost something. I think that's pretty important, right? That th this purpose stands out as not suffering as everything else basically did. Perhaps mankind's obsession with gold and silver stems from this observation. Because they were valuable and redeemable when nothing else seemed to be. Perhaps God used the metals over and over again in the Scriptures for His purpose to show that He had built redemption into the earth. They would overlay any object that may break or rot with gold to protect and prolong the use. That's why kings would build images of themselves in gold because they knew of their own frailty, right? And their golden images would make them feel like they had some immortality coming for them. Now, let, let me make this clear. All of this was just external and superficial. 
The aesthetics were not making anything any different. It was just preserving. It was just masking, right? It was just putting a coat over things that were not going to last forever. Now, here's the takeaway. We shouldn't get too hung up on the appearances of things. Otherwise, uh, other than that, they serve as a powerful means of getting people's attention. But here's what we can learn from the gold standard the Old Testament swears by. The gold standard in the Old Testament was never a means of redeeming, but was a tool for reaching. Do you remember that where the gold came from? You know how they got the gold? Well, who's they, right? Moses, you know where the gold came from? People like us brought it, right? Moses said, hey, y'all, we got to take up an offering because we, we don't have nothing to build with. And y'all have got a bunch of stuff. And he says, hey, bring the gold. Now you know what they did with the gold. They didn't just put it in their pockets or put it in their bank accounts, right? It didn't have banks. But they used it, they melted it, and used it for this building because they wanted this to be a long-term, a long-lasting sanctuary. Now, this reaches back to last week. The nation of Israel began at this place. And this was kind of, before I'll explain this in a minute, but this was kind of the mantra that they decided to live by. We're only going to live as good as we give. That's what, kind of, that's what Moses instilled into them. Here's what I mean. They weren't going to hold back and live off their plenty while the faith community suffered or took second place. They made a priority to give to God. And you know why God started the nation of Israel like he did? With, with them walking out of Egypt, remember, how, remember the scripture tells us they walked out of Egypt and they borrowed things? They borrowed jewelry and that people just randomly started giving them gifts, giving them gold, giving them silver. You know why God started the nation off with a bunch of borrowed and gifted treasures? Because God built into their national conscience everything they had was given to them. Moses led the nation into giving God off the top, giving God from the best and most valuable so that they wouldn't be deceived by thinking it was an end rather than a means to an end. Now, the Apostle Paul, years later, would use this teaching to teach us something very important. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty but to set, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Now, I know what you'll say. I'm not rich, Justin, so this isn't to me. The word rich comes from a simple idea that you are given something from God. And the next part of that verse says this. God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So whatever we've been given, it has been given to us by a God who has richly provided us. And the whole point of this is that we should not set our, set our hopes in uncertainty even though God gave us these things. The moral of the story, Paul goes on to say, we are to do good, be rich in good works, be generous, ready to share, and listen to this. Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So the idea here is that God gives us plenty. The word rich, the word rich in, in, in Greek is this word plethro, which means plenty or plethora. That God gives us and he has given us all these great things, and we are to understand first and foremost that it's most used and best used, turning it back over to him for his purposes, for his good use. So we should say like the Jews, we're only going to live as good as we give. As in, I'm not going to have an expense that comes before my offering. You hear that? The Jews live by this idea that we're not going to have an expense in our life that prevents us from
from giving God the best of our life. You hear that? I'm not going to let myself get so strung out to where I can't give, God, give to God off the top and somehow suffer under the weight of expenses that rob me from the true joy in life. Because God's kingdom is greater and most worthy and more fulfilling than my own. So I'm going to live as good as I give. Moses led them to, to make this sanctuary this excellent place that they held the high standards to appeal to the most people. They were all about, they were about to enter a land that with vineyards they didn't dig, wells they didn't, uh, vineyards they didn't plant, wells they didn't dig, houses they did not build. But before they got there and all, the, and all that went to their heads, Moses taught them at the heart of worship and community and ministry is our sacrifice for God's excellence. So as they built this container for God, this dwelling place for God, this platform for God, notice that what was so crucial. God was going to be as present as they were sacrificial. Not because they bought His presence or were buying Him into their life, but because God would be most felt and recognized and received and experienced where people were most humble and most sacrificial. One thing a church must know and require of its leaders and really everyone is that I know this. This standard is essential. This isn't about the number of zeros. This is about percentage. It's about what it costs us. Those who sacrifice a little are never satisfied. But those who sacrifice more and appreciate those who sacrifice more appreciate, enjoy, and understand the joy and the bliss of worship, community, and ministry the most. And listen, what I give does not save me. What I do does not save me. What they gave and the gold they overlaid everything with, that did not save anybody. It just helped build the best possible platform that would save the most possible people. And that's what we're all about. And that's what we have to be all about is we're going to build and maintain this sanctuary. God makes it clear in the next few verses, verse 17 through 22 that we read, the goal was not saving anybody. But what they poured on the gold would actually do the saving. Verse 17 through 22 is all about the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was this place where the blood would be poured when the sacrifices were made for sins. So, the gold overlay served as a backdrop and a spotlight for true redemption. So it's like the gold was this place for the light, was this light that shined and put all the attention where the true redemption was coming from, the blood of the sacrificial lamb. So at the heart of this ark, at the heart of this mercy seat, was atonement. Atonement means access to God. That we're no longer separated, but we're reconciled, restored, united, and secured. The place for atonement was at the heart of the sanctuary. On the ark's lid... The word mercy seat in Hebrew literally just means covering. The reason mercy seat is the idea that it's something that covers an object that is guilty and that it, and it provides a merciful you know, uh, a covering. One life for another. Now, they already understood this. The Passover lambs, the blood was applied to each doorpost. But here we have this universal offering for the nation, not just individual doorposts where blood is put on them, but one single offering, one single altar, one single place where the blood was poured for every single person in the nation. 
And here's what we need to know about this. There were daily offerings, there were weekly offerings, there were annual offerings, and the big event every year, once a year, the blood would be poured on the mercy seat to renew their good standing with God. That the Jews had this contract with God. That every year, you're to bring the offering to me, and that offering will give you a good standing for a year. But unless you, do it, unless you don't do it every year, the good standing's not going to be there because these animals were just temporary ways of bringing them access, bringing them to God, reconciling them to God. Now, we don't have to do this, right? And this is where we can really step out of the Old Testament and get into the New Testament. We don't have to do this every year, every week, every day, because Jesus did it once for all, right? God's own Son, God's only Son, Hebrews 9, makes a perfect uh, a bridge between these two stories. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So he's talking about the Ark of the Covenant, all the things they did in the Old Testament. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, a preview, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Christ is, did a work, and he ascended to heaven, where he is the finished, final sacrifice for all of us, so not an annual thing, and he goes on to say that. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, what, what about the mercy seat, though? What's that, how does that relate to us? Hebrews 10 tells us, When Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, the right hand of God is a symbol of power. Anytime you read in the Bible, it's, it's the symbol of God's amazing, awesome power that is too good and too much for us. And when Jesus sat down on that throne, it's as if he was providing a mercy seat. He was providing atonement. His sacrifice was sitting down on the throne of God just as the blood was poured on the mercy seat of the ark. Jesus sat down on the throne where God dwells. 1 John 2 tells us that Jesus is our propitiation for our sins. Not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. The Greek word propitiation is the same Greek word that means covering. The Hebrew mercy seat, covering, propitiation, means covering. So Jesus is our mercy seat. And that alone is why we worship regardless of any other blessing or any other thing that happens to us. Do you get that? We worship. We should worship because of this in and of itself. I mean, it's true to say that Jesus' blood is enough to cover us until we get to heaven. And I don't just mean to cover us from our sins. I mean, we don't deserve and we should not demand and we don't need anything else from God other than the fact that Jesus has done something for us and has given us immediate and direct access to God every single minute of every single day. Now maybe you wonder, what were those cherubs doing on either side of the ark? The cherubs overlooked the ark in awe and wonder, marveling at God and sinner reconciled. Because the cherubs were from heaven, right? These were images of the cherubs in heaven. They know how holy God is, right? 
I mean, they, they, the, the, Isaiah 6 says the seraphim, which are other angels, they, they spin around and they wander around in the heavens and declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with His glory, right? They are always proclaiming the holiness of God. And when you get in the presence of God's holiness, our only response can be is we are undone, right? We are unclean. We are sinful. And the angels on the ark are looking at this place where God is dwelling with people and they're marveling how in the world can God and sinner be reconciled? Think about as they gazed into the future, marveling, amazed that God would share His presence, make and keep promises, send provisions, and give power to sinners like us. Not on the basis of how good we do. And, and listen, the angels didn't just marvel when they had a good service on the Sabbath. Right? The angels marveled at what God had done for His people. Right? At His love for people. So here's the thing. In our world today, if you were to poll People, why do you go to worship? Why do you go to church? People would, you know, why do you attend worship? Why do you join community? Why do you embrace ministry and missions? And why do you think it's important? People would say, well, you know what? I go because the preacher's great, or I go because the music's awesome, or I go because the social scene is something that I like to be a part of, or maybe I go because the mission field is invigorating, or the ministry opportunities are fulfilling. And listen, I'm here for all that stuff. We ought to be about all that stuff. We should do best and do our best and be excellent. But these little golden cherubs should teach us a lot. They can't move past the blood. They are not marveling at how awesome the service is or how great the music or how great the ministry. They are marveling at the atonement that God has made for His people. The sanctuary was not built around the stuff that we think it should be built around. It was built around marveling at God's love and kindness. The sanctuary should be built around the wonder of how God has come near to those of us who had drawn away and been drawn away by sin. And that's the season that we're entering into, right? Where God has come near to those of us that have went far away. That's why we worship. That's why we build community. That's why we do ministry because God has done something for us that demands a response. And some days you're not going to feel like it. And some days I'm not going to make you feel like it. Some days we aren't always going to make everything click like we hope to. But listen, God's work for you and God's grace towards you and His sacrifice for you they always send forward in time this demand and this, this, this call for worship. How can we resist or feel like doing something else or give ourselves to anything else as these cherub look down upon the offering altar? They were marveling at how good God had been to dwell with people who were sinful. And we and I, dwelling with God like we get to dwell with God, we ought to always remember just how good we have it. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for access. Thank you that you have drawn near to us even though we've drifted far away. And thank you, God, we can come to you. We have access to you. We have a approachability to you, not because of what we've done, but because of what you have done for us. 
Lord, this ark, this chest in the old days was a symbol of your olive branch to people, but it was still based on what they could do and how they could do it. Once a year, they had to prove and renew their covenant with you, but God, you've made a covenant with us, and you've broken out of the box, and your provisions and your promises and your power has come to us, not behind a wall or a veil, but wherever we are at. Father, thank you for the lesson we can learn from this story in the Old Testament, but thank you even more that you have brought us Jesus and given us access to you free of charge full of grace. So may we offer up our praise in awe and wonder. How in the world could God and sinner be reconciled? Only because of Jesus. So Father, we have nothing else to do but praise you all the days of our life. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.